Well, aren't baptisms the best? I hope, uh, hope everyone across all of our locations is getting a real clear sense now uh, why we consider baptism mornings to be highlight mornings. They're just, there's really nothing more exciting than hearing a story of a changed life that's celebrating publicly, uh, not only with God, but with us as a church family. And uh, I'm sure for many of you, it feels like we're on a bit of a downer now. Uh, I probably feel that too. So I'm not offended. All I'll say is this. If in the future you want more of that and less of this, all we have to do is encourage more people to get baptized, to share the love and life-changing message of Christ with more people. So let's all uh, be encouraged to do that so that we can celebrate and uh, enjoy that gift uh, of a baptism story and a baptism experience more uh, as a church family. Just fantastic. So here we go. Um, Question of the day, how do you know whether someone is for something or against something? How do you know? What, what, what clues kind of indicate one way or the other? Someone's for something or against something? We're, we're going to start off with a little bit, of, uh, little bit of a game, a little bit of a test to see whether we know what it is that we're able to discern to figure out whether someone is for something or someone is against something. So in just a moment, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put an image on the screen. And across all of our locations, I want you to shout out loud the word for. If you feel that the image on the screen is for the thing that I'm going to say they're to be for or against. Or I want you to shout out the word against. If you feel like they're against the very thing that I'm referring to in the image to try to test out if we have this instinct, if we have these criteria built into our discernment filter to determine whether someone is for something or someone is against something, okay? So here's the first one, are you ready? I I want you to, with with the Stanley Cup Finals in mind, I I want you to to tell me, shout out across all of our locations, whether these people are for or against the Chicago Blackhawks. Take a look. Okay, shout out, Which, which is it? It's for, right? They're for the Chicago Blackhawks. You can tell by their jerseys and by the enthusiasm on their faces, can't you? Right? Obvious one. Okay, that, that's an easy warmer-upper. Let's try this one. Are these people for or against war? Check this out. Okay, yell it out. Very good. They're against, aren't they? And the, the picketing and the picket signs... Uh, kind of tell us that, right? They kind of, they kind of indicate that. Now, now, sometimes, those were sort of easy. Sometimes we don't have outward, you know, jerseys to wear or picket signs that we can hold to, to kind of indicate whether we're for or against something. So sometimes we've got to use, you know, more, more subtle indicators. So, you know, this one's a little trickier. Um, is this person for or against vegetables? Check this out. Which is it? They're against, right? And we know that not because of a jersey or because of a picket sign, but because of the body language. In fact, you might think that that picture was sent by my mother. Becky would say that I look very similar to that kid just at age 42. Anyways, body language is certainly an indicator. And, uh, and sometimes you can't even read the body language, so it gets really, really difficult. And this is, this is the most difficult one of all. This is the last one. I want you to shout out across all of our locations for or against, are these people for or against Canada? Check this out. Okay, which is it? Actually, I'm just kidding. Hold your breath. Don't, don't, don't go crazy. I'm just, I'm just messing with you at this point. I just wanted to have some fun seeing as we're kind of officially launched into, 
into election season. So let's bring things back down and, uh, and get more to the point today. And that is, how do you know if someone's for or against Jesus? How do you know? How do you know if a person is for or against the work and purposes of God in the world? What's the jersey? What's the signage? What's the, what's the body language? Have you, have you figured that out? More importantly, have you discerned that for yourself? What it means in your life? What priorities, values, attitudes, behaviors are for God instead of against God? That's what we're going to look at for this next month in four different sections of Matthew chapter 12. Because as we resume our kind of ongoing study of the biography of Jesus written by a guy named Matthew, that's the question that Matthew is posing in some episodes where he contrasts people who are for and against God. And we're going to look at the first of those today in Matthew 12 if you uh, brought a Bible or a portable device along and want to read along with us. We're going to start in verse 1 of Matthew 12 where it says this. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now we're introduced here to a group of people called the Pharisees. We've heard about them before in our study of Matthew. If you're unfamiliar with them, the Pharisees were kind of the religious experts and leaders of the day. And what made them experts and leaders of the day in Jewish culture was their familiarity and their training in understanding and applying the Jewish law. They had kind of become fanatics about the Jewish law, experts in the Jewish law. They were the ones who had read the instructions on the back cover of the box. And so they knew more than anyone how to play the game of life and faith according to Jewish culture. And, you know, as very important, prominent people in first century Jewish society, they were threatened by Jesus because of the crowds that he was starting to Amass. And so by this point in Matthew's biography of Jesus, the Pharisees were looking at ways to kind of test Jesus and trip him up. And on this particular day, it looks like they've got one. Because they found Jesus doing something on what's called a Sabbath. Now a Sabbath, if you're unfamiliar, um, was simply a day off that God in his law had instituted for the people of Israel to take. It, it really started, um, demonstrated, or as an example, by God uh, in the very first chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, when God creates the heavens and earth and the universe and everything. And uh, the creation narrative says he worked for six days. And then on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And that pattern of that day of rest once a week was something that he instituted called the Sabbath. His desire was for people to cease work on a rhythmic kind of a weekly basis for approximately a 24-hour period. To enjoy a full day off, a full day without Work And these Pharisees, you need to understand, were so fanatical about this. And Jewish culture was so rigid about this that they'd actually broken down a number of different ways in which you could violate the Sabbath. A number of different categories or applications that, that represented work. And what they're pointing out here to Jesus whose disciples were eating grain, was that they were violating one of those categories, particularly one called reaping. So if you were a farmer and you were in the business of growing grain, if you harvested that grain, that was called 
Reaping, that was part of your work. And since reaping was part of the work, that's what the disciples, according to the Pharisees, were, were guilty of. It's not that they were guilty of eating on the Sabbath. You didn't need to fast for the entire 24 hours. It was that they were harvesting the food on the Sabbath as opposed to harvesting it the day before and then eating it, eating it that day. That's what they were guilty of and unlawful of, according to the Pharisees in the eyes of God. And so Jesus responds this way in Matthew chapter 12, verse 3. He says there, haven't you read what David did when he is, and, and, and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple, they desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent. Jesus understands how fanatical they are about the Jewish law. And so he appeals to them at that level in his response and kind of asks some questions to their question. And the first of the two kind of successive points that he makes uh, involves a story in the Old Testament, in the book of 1 Samuel, where the soon-to-be king of Israel at that time named David was fleeing from the existing king named Saul. And while he was fleeing, he didn't have too many networks or contacts except for this priest buddy of his whom he asked if he had anything to eat. And all he had to eat was this loaf of bread that had been consecrated or set apart for God. It was representative of the presence of God that only the priest was allowed to eat according to the law. And only the priest was allowed to eat once a fresh loaf had been prepared. But in that story, and Jesus would have known that they knew this, in that story... David ate the bread and nothing happened to him. He wasn't punished. He wasn't accused of being, you know, against God or against the law. Or he just ate it and it was understood to be okay. It was kind of an exception to the, to the law or to the practice of the law. And then on top of that, he refers to the idea of priests themselves, who if you think about it, because they have to administer all of the religious activities on the Sabbath, they by definition have to work every Sabbath, and so they, by definition, violate the Sabbath laws all the time. And yet they're not kind of labeled as guilty of violating Sabbath laws either because they're understood to be exempt from the Sabbath law in that sense. And so what Jesus is doing, notice he's not talking about eating grain and whether eating grain is considered reaping or not. He's not talking on that level. What he's talking to them about is the level at which they're interpreting and applying the law in a higher degree. He, he's challenging the way they absorb the law because he's referring to exceptions and exemptions, knowing that they, in their fanaticism to the law, have no room for exceptions or exemptions. They just see it, apply it, and believe that it is what it is, no questions asked. And he's suggesting that perhaps these law-abiding, law-fanatical, ruled-by-the-rules kind of Pharisees maybe don't get the point or the design or even the rules as completely as they think they do. And that's what Matthew drills home then in a second kind of a, a parallel episode here that he records beginning in verse 9 of Matthew 12. He says, they're going on from that place. Jesus went into their, meaning the Pharisees, synagogue, their place of worship. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, at this point, Matthew gets a little more descript 
He's getting a little clearer on what these Pharisees were about. It says they're really trying to, to trap Jesus, to be able to lay charges against him. And again, they find him in a Sabbath environment, probably the next Sabbath, which in their day was a Saturday, not a Sunday, like a typical uh, religious day off is considered in, in our context. And, uh, and they notice that there's a guy there with a, with a shriveled hand. And I, I guess, the text doesn't say, but I guess they can sense that Jesus would want to heal this person because they're asking whether it's lawful for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath. And what's interesting is that, you know, medical attention was one of those uh, kind of categories that was viewed as work that was technically, you know, unlawful. It was out of bounds according to the Sabbath-keeping law with one exception, medical emergency. And these Pharisees would have been familiar with that. In that case, they would have had room for that exception. What they were trying to test Jesus in was whether or not this was part of one of those exceptions or not. Because all this man had was a shriveled hand. He was kind of crippled or something. It doesn't say, but, but certainly he would have had a shriveled hand the day before. And he would have had it that day. And he would have had it the day after. And he would have been fine if Jesus would have waited a day to heal him. And so they were wondering whether he was going to violate the Sabbath law of treating a non-medical emergency on the Sabbath that only made accommodation for emergency. That was kind of the configuration or the understanding of the law that they were applying to Jesus in, on this particular Sabbath. And so again, Jesus responds to their question with a question of his own. He says, in verse 11, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's interesting because Jesus, again, knows that, you know, they're all about the rules. And so he tries to speak their language. But instead of responding to the rule about treating medical issues and medical emergencies, he, he talks about another rule. And that's about rescue and about helping animals. Because, you know, a shepherd, you know, they shouldn't be tending to their animals on a Sabbath. They should be just kind of leaving them. That would be considered work unless one's kind of gone astray and they need help. And in that case, the Sabbath laws permitted that a shepherd could go. It wasn't considered work to go and to rescue, to help out an animal. There was a provision for, for help and for, and for rescue. And so what Jesus says is, you know, he kind of assumes that people understand that, you know, a, a person, a human would be more valuable than a sheep or an animal. I don't want to go there with any, you know, pet lovers who might want to disagree. I don't want to hear any debate about that, let's not even go there. Don't fill my inbox with whether you feel that. I know some people take their pets pretty seriously and I'm not gonna judge that very much, okay? So just, just sort of leave that. But you know, what Jesus says isn't, is it lawful to, to heal on the Sabbath? Because there was probably no Sabbath law for miraculous healing. They probably never considered that. What he says though is it is lawful to do good. It's lawful to do good. And he looks at them and says, of course it's lawful to help. There's provision to help animals. Of course you can help people, which kind of sets us up for the conclusion of this episode of these two parallel instances. Where in verse 13, it says that Jesus said to that man, stretch out your hand. And so he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. 
how they might kill Jesus. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Isn't it interesting in these episodes, the contrast that Matthew creates? You've got a Jesus who's kind of hanging out, relaxing on the Sabbath with his mates. And, you know, they're having a little bite to eat during their countryside walk. And then the next week, they're worshiping as you're supposed to do, engaging with God in the Sabbath. And they run into someone that Jesus could help and he helps them. That's the Jesus that he paints in Matthew chapter 12. Whereas the Pharisees begin by trying to test Jesus. Then they try to trip him up and lay charges against him. And by the end, they're plotting on how to kill him and take his life. One's helping people, one's trying to to kill people. And the question is, which of those groups of people are for God and which are against God? Jesus or the Pharisees? Shout it out at your location, who's for God? And shout it out at your location, who's against God? And how do you know? See, what Matthew's launching us into is understanding that there are instances modeled here by the Pharisees, there are instances where people can believe that they're actually for God, that they can be doing things with a motivation and a mindset and a a mental construct, that they're actually advancing the purposes of God, when in reality, as evidenced by the Pharisees, when in reality, they are diametrically opposed to what God is about. And in this instance, it's the Pharisees' fanaticism with these rules. It's the way that they make these rules rule over everything else that completely misses the point of why God has instituted rules in the first place. To just love and serve people. In fact, that's the point Jesus made after the first instance in the grain field. We skipped over it, but it kind of represents the big idea of this whole section of text where Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 7, if you had known what these words mean, these are quoted from an Old Testament prophet named Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, or I desire mercy more than sacrifice. He says, you would not have condemned the innocent. If you would really understand the very rules that you are fanatically trying to uphold and apply, if you really got the gist of them, then you would realize that you are more against God than you realize. And you would understand what it takes to actually be for God, to value mercy more than sacrifice and fanaticism to the rules. Now, quick clarification for some of us, because I I think that There are some of us that at this point are really tracking to the point where we feel like if we're going to follow Jesus, we can just abandon all the rules. And I I see that not only in the church, I see that in broader society. There's sort of a, let's get rid of all the rules and just kind of be Jesus, faith people, whatever whatever that means. Let's be clear that God instituted 613 Jewish laws in the Old Testament. And when Jesus came to earth, he said, I have not come. We've already studied this in Matthew. He said, I have not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it, to bring it to its fruition and culmination, to kind of perfect it. So even Jesus never intended for us to abandon or reject the laws and rules and instructions and commands that God has instituted, but rather Jesus tried to contextualize them. And he did so probably no more famously than when he reduced all of those rules down to what he called the two great commandments. On the one hand, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. He says all the law and prophets, all the rules 
hang on that. And that care for people, that way you treat people, that consideration of people is what all of these laws serve to support. And the moment, what Jesus is saying, what Matthew is saying, the moment that you start to get so into the rules and so fanatical about rule keeping that the rules start to rule instead of caring for people being what is paramount, then you begin to live on the unhappy side of par when it comes to being for or against God. God's not against the rules, but the moment the rules oppose people or oppose the service of people, the net service of people, you're on the wrong side of the equation, even though rules ought to matter. They do around here. You know, we get a lot of pushback, for example, in our uh, homeless shelter when we have a policy manual, when we apply that, when people get disciplined or people get bans instituted from the shelter. And we actually restrict the exposure of people who would otherwise be homeless to our homeless shelter out of disciplinary issues. And people say, oh, well, if we're Jesus people, we should just love them. And you need to understand that to love effectively, you need rules. You just need them applied in a way where the love and care for individuals and communities of people is paramount, not when the rules are. And I think you can discern the difference. We know what it's like when people just uphold the rules just for the rules sake, don't we? And I was thinking this week of all the times when I'll go to airports and get there earlier than my flight and I'll investigate whether there's an earlier flight that I can catch. And sometimes I'll go and there'll be an earlier flight and I'll ask the person at the uh, ticket counter, you know, whether there's availability on that flight. Yes, there is. Can I, you know, switch and get on that flight instead of this flight? Sure. Give me your ticket. Give me a ticket. They give me a new boarding pass. Off I go. No harm, no foul. It works great. But sometimes, and I haven't figured out what the difference is. Maybe it's certain airlines. I don't know. But sometimes those conversations become absolutely crazy making. Where you'll talk to the person at the counter. You'll say, you know, I noticed there's an earlier flight. Has it departed yet? No, it departs in an hour. Um, is there availability on that flight? Yeah, there's tons. It's half full. Is there availability in my like, seat class in, in economy? I'm not looking for an upgrade. Is there, you know, seat like my seat? Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, are there other people who are waiting to, you know, is there a, a waiting list to get on, on that flight? Nope, nope, lots of availability. Okay, so can I switch my ticket? No. Well, well why not? You know, well, because the, the rules. Well, what, what are the rules? That, that this ticket that is going to get me to that place, you know, two hours later can't get me two hours, like, what's the rule? The rule is that your ticket can't exchange unless you pay a fee, which is basically the same price as buying another ticket and you negotiate back and forth and you think who made these rules that are ultimately designed to serve people it just feels like these rules exist just for there to be rules and that they don't actually exist to serve people they exist to serve a company or to I don't make money or something they're they're not helpful in a case like that and they're just like I said they're crazy making the only thing more crazy making perhaps is when we run into rules like that that just exist for rules sake in the name of God or in the church. You know, it's a baptism Sunday around here. Pretty big deal. Reminds me of big deal baptisms in my own life. Probably the biggest deal outside of maybe my own for me. Um, was the day that I got to baptize my dad. And I've talked about it a lot around here over the years. That one of the big reasons I got into ministry in the first place. Was so that I could see a church like ours make enough sense of Jesus. That a guy like my dad would get enough of a sense of Jesus that he'd want to follow him. 
And I joked with the board at the time that I got involved in uh, working here at the church that the day my dad was in the baptism tank was the day that I could retire. Because that, that image, that picture, that goal was such a big deal for me. And about four years in, God gave us that opportunity. My dad shared his story like we had people share today. I shared it live, not on video. And, uh, and I got to be in the baptism tank with my own father. We were thrilled as a family. We were looking forward to it. Uh, my brother at the time uh, was working as a pastor in a church uh, in New York State. And so we were eager for he and Tracy to come and experience it. In fact, we were talking about whether Ben and I could baptize, baptize him together. And then we were going to have some family stuff after. And it's going to be a great day. Until we realized that my brother couldn't come. And what we discovered was that at the church that he was serving at, there was a rule that if you worked there, you had to be there every Sunday, unless you were like away for a week of vacation. That as a staff person at that church, you couldn't miss a Sunday. Missing a Sunday was against the rules. And because the rule was you couldn't miss a Sunday, he wasn't going to be allowed to attend his dad's baptism. And, you know, there was some conversation about it, but at the end of the day, um, rules are rules. And my brother just devastatingly had to miss the baptism of his own father because he was a pastor at a church that wouldn't let him. And you know, while you're sitting there feeling like that, that, that just isn't right. You got to know that, that we do that around here too. I'm not just going to throw stones at them. We, we do that around here too lots of times. In fact, I was thinking of a time a bunch of years ago where our leadership was reviewing our model of ministry, basically how we discipled people, how we, you know, the, the way of life that we were inviting people into. We were kind of evaluating the effectiveness of our programs. And we were considering this, this one person had come to mind who was kind of in our minds, the poster child of the person who was living this out. They were doing everything that we asked for, participating in every program and, and you know, on every sort of team and serving in every way. And, and you know, just a great poster child of activity in the life of our church. This person was a single parent at the time, and right around that time, they told us a story um, where someone had visited them at home. And the reason someone had visited them at home is because one night, one of their kids had fallen down the stairs and hurt themselves, got like a scar on their face or a black eye or something. And they'd gone to school the next day, and the teacher, one of their teachers asked them what happened. They said that they fell down the stairs, and the teacher, because of, you know, certain... You know, protective training and whatever that they'd gone through, they, they were sort of suspicious about that. And so they actually called Family and Children's Services to investigate. Family and Children's Services showed up at this person's house and asked how their child was doing. And they said, what do you mean how is my child doing? They said, well, from that fall down the stairs. And they said, what do you mean that fall down the stairs? I have no idea what happened to them. And they, they showed up and then they, they discovered that the parent had no idea that they'd actually fallen down the stairs, which they had. They weren't making that up. And here's the thing, because the parent had been away for 11 consecutive nights participating in meetings and programs at the church. Just like we asked them to. Just like the rules that we had set out for them to participate in. The poster child for our, at that time, you know, kind of playing by the rules, <laughs> we had to realize was getting investigated by family and children's services <laughs> because of it. And you got to know how convicting that was to us. Took us back to the drawing board. We totally reevaluated it, revolutionized our ministry model, where today we invite people far more into a way of life than participating in programs. In fact, you know around here, if you've been here at all, we're just inviting people into three primary programs that can drive what we call a lifestyle 
of full devotion. My point isn't to talk about that. My point is just to say that we're all susceptible of getting ruled by the rules, aren't we? And when we do, we fundamentally miss the point that the rules are supposed to serve people. And when we do, we find ourselves more against God, even though we might want to think that we're for God. So to wrap things up today, I just want us to think ourselves about ways, not that we've seen that happen out there, but ways that that happens in here, in our own lives. Have you ever been so committed to the rules that you found yourself actually missing the point for why God gives commands, instructions, and ideals to actually serve and reach people? And I wonder how many of us are so committed to something like not partying that we resist and reject the invitations of our friends to attend their parties and to develop relationships with them so that we can share the love of Christ with them, be there in times of need, and actually lead them into a relationship with Jesus themselves. Or, or I wonder how many of us are so rigid and so focused and so disciplined with our giving and our financial, our tithing, that we're just ungenerous people and we neglect the needs around us. Jesus didn't say it's one or the other. Jesus actually said in the scriptures to do both. You know, I wonder how many of us are so, are so committed to the rules as we understand them that what it means when we talk to people is that we're, we're just mean. And we argue and we insult and degrade and judge and just do everything to make our point about stuff as opposed to listening and opening a, our, our minds to a diverse perspective, whether we agree with them or not, and accept people and engage them in love and care and relationship, whether they'll ever agree with us or, or us with them. I wonder how many of us are, are so committed to the, the instructions and the picture that God has for what our character ought to look like that we become unvulnerable about the ways that we mess up and the ways that we struggle and miss out on being a blessing to other people by sharing our struggles with them and encouraging them and theirs and miss the wonder of human community as the way that God's intended. Might there be ways in your life and in mine where out of a desire to be for God, we're actually missing the point and are finding ourselves more against God than we've ever realized? That's the journey that we're going to be on for the next month. I think you're going to love this series. Every week, God's going to introduce through Matthew a different way of thinking, a different set of attitudes, priorities, mindsets, and behaviors where people and us may have thought that we were for God only to discover that we're more against God than we could ever know. Starting with today, where we ask ourselves what our relationship is with the rules and whether we obey and adhere to and understand and get to know the commandments, instructions, and vision of God so that we can be God-loving, people-loving people to a greater degree. So that we can desire mercy more than adherence to the rules. Or whether we're people who are fundamentally ruled by the rules and our fanaticism of rule-keeping is stifling our ability to love God with everything that we've got and love our neighbor as ourselves. Which one are you? Are you for God or against God? Let's pray that if he's convicting us of ways 
that we're discovering we're more against God than we realized, that we can come to him for, to forgiveness, that we can right-size our perspective, and we can live out his rules and vision in a way that reflects his heart to people who desperately need it. Let's pray together. God, thanks for the way that you've spoken to us. Thanks for your word that you've given to us and to Jesus who modeled and taught. Thanks for your instructions. Thanks for your commandments. Thanks for the rules. But thanks for the person of Jesus who could help us make sense of them. And I pray unique to everyone this morning, no matter who we are, no matter where we're at, speak clearly to the ways that we struggle with getting it wrong, the ways that we struggle missing the point about what it means to follow your commandments, what it means to obey you, what it means to seek out your wisdom and instructions and to try to apply that to our lives. I pray that you'd right-size those values, right-size those attitudes, right-size those priorities right now in each of our heads and hearts so that we can live in a way that exudes your heart, not to abandon the rules, but to love you and to love people more than anything. God, protect us from being ruled by the rules and finding ourselves on the wrong side of promoting your vision and values in the world. We want to be for you, not against you. Work mightily and miraculously from the inside out in each of us this month, starting today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.